This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This is First Draft, a dialogue on writing. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. This is a show about craft, the writing life, and the themes that are present in a writer's work. Every interview is a journey. I don't really know where our conversation is going to go, but I do know that it's fascinating every time, and one way or another, we seem to get around to what it means to be human and how through craft, that idea is made manifest. Thank you for joining me on this literary pilgrimage into the mind of one writer at a time. My interview today is with Richard Powers, author of Bewilderment. It didn't take me long to realize, well, that's what empathy it is. It's, it's trying to adopt the perspective and the affective state and the, and the concerns and the emotions of another person. We'll be back with Richard Powers after these essential words. First, I want to say to you, thank you for listening. The episode you're about to tune into represents eight plus years of dedication and perseverance for producing this show. In addition to conversations that go into depth about a writer's work and obsessions, this show and every interview it features aims to embody the values of honesty, vulnerability, curiosity, and connection. I invite you to join me in this journey as a First Draft patron, which gives you access to cuts from the interviews that didn't make it into the final show, ad-free, pitch-free episodes, and writing tips from my guests. You can become a supporter by going to patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash firstdraftwriters. Any amount is welcome, but for $6 a month, you receive thank you gifts on a monthly basis. Plus, when you donate to First Draft, you are joining the community of writers and readers who support conversations like the one you are about to hear. With your donation, you are saying yes to continuing the space of honesty, vulnerability, curiosity, and connection that each show reaches to achieve. You are the scaffolding that holds up this platform that shares the insights and challenges of the writing life. So please go to patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters. And let's be honest, there is so much free content out there. In fact, what you are about to listen to is free, but it is not without expense in hard costs and labor to make. Don't get me wrong, producing these interviews is indeed a labor of love, But there is an incredible amount of labor involved, time and effort, planning and schedule wrangling across time zones from Colorado to New York to London to Tel Aviv to Auckland and back again. And it all adds up to the creation of this show and the archive, which has more than 300 episodes you can dive into. 
I put so much care and effort into this show, and I hope you can tell with every episode. The process begins when I select a book, contact the author, schedule the interview. Then I read the book, take notes, conduct research, have the conversation, and edit the show. This takes equipment, organization, more late nights than you can imagine, and a lot of heart and sweat to come to fruition each week. And there is no staff. I am the show from start to finish. I know you may not be in front of a computer right now, so why not write a note on your hand or set the alarm on your phone to remind yourself to donate to First Draft when you get home? Please beat the odds of having to listen to this seven times before you join the First Draft community. Go to patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters. Please stay tuned at the end of this show. I'll offer recommendations on an episode in the archive that is similar to the one you're about to hear. And please rate the show on iTunes and tell everyone you know to subscribe. And thank you for your support and for being here with me today, right now, in this moment, and on to the show. My guest today is Richard Powers, the author of 13 novels. Much of his work explores the effects of modern science and technology, and his most recent works, The Overstory and Bewilderment, explore our human ties to ecology and climate change. His novel, The Echo Maker, won the 2006 National Book Award for Fiction, and The Overstory won the Pulitzer Prize in Fiction. He has also won many other awards, including a MacArthur Fellowship. He lives in the Great Smoky Mountains. His new novel, Bewilderment, tells the story of astrobiologist Theo Byrne, who is single-handedly raising his unusual nine-year-old, Robin, following the death of his wife. Robin is a warm, kind boy who spends hours painting elaborate pictures of endangered animals. He's also about to be expelled from third grade for smashing his friend in the face. As his son grows more troubled, Theo hopes to keep him off psychoactive drugs. Theo learns of an experimental neurofeedback treatment to bolster Robin's emotional control one that involves training the boy on the recorded patterns of his mother's brainwaves. Bewilderment is a novel that focuses on the Byrne family and the natural world amidst their personal and planetary grief. We began the discussion with Richard Powers reading an excerpt of his novel, Bewilderment. They share a lot, astronomy and childhood. Both are voyages across huge distances. Both search for facts beyond their grasp. Both theorize wildly and let possibilities multiply without limits. Both are humbled every few weeks. Both operate out of ignorance. Both are mystified by time. Both are forever starting out. For a dozen years, my job made me feel like a child. I sat behind the computer in my office, looking at data sets from telescopes and toying with formulas that could describe them. I roamed the halls in search of minds who might want to come out and play. I lay in bed with a canary yellow legal pad and a black fine liner, recreating the journeys to Cygnus A or through the large Magellanic cloud or around the tadpole galaxy trips I'd once made in pulp, pulp novels. This time around, none of the indigenous inhabitants spoke English or practiced telepathy or floated parasitically through the frozen vacuum 
or linked together in hive minds to enact the mass plans. All they did was metabolize and respire. But in my discipline, that was magic enough. Do you remember writing so this? <laughs> I I do. I I you know I I always uh, over the years have created these characters uh, through whom I can get the vicarious pleasure in the career that uh, I didn't take. And, you know, it was, it was great fun creating Theo, um, who is an astrobiologist, that to say that he's working in a field that's younger than himself, uh, in a field that didn't even exist when I, I was Theo's age. Uh, so he has the excitement of being there almost from the beginning, watching, watching the discipline take shape. And he alludes in this passage um, to having been as a, as a kid, you know, when, when he was his, his son's age, um, a great fan of science fiction. And it was these imaginative voyages that he took when he was young that prefigure the voyages that he takes as, as an adult working inside this uh, scientific discipline. And and I love this, uh, this little moment where he's saying, you know, um, something about my life was very lucky because I never entirely had to give up these voyages that I dreamed of making when I was young. Yeah. And I've, I've read uh, about how this story converged for you. A very brief synopsis of this story is that Theo is now a single dad. His, his wife, Alyssa died two years earlier and he is with his son, Robin, who turns nine in the beginning of the book. And Robin is, is a special kid. He might have OCD. He probably has some ADD. He has anger issues, but he doesn't want to medicate him. And they're just kind of alone in the world. Theo is kind of watching Robin's, maybe the severity of his issues get a little worse. Mm-hmm. And he and his wife, before she died, had taken a part in this experiment where um, a scientist uh, that worked like kind of a he's kind of a psychiatrist, psychologist type mapped their brain for certain emotions and is using that map to try to have other people basically mimic those states of being. As Robin maybe gets worse, Theo goes to this man, Courier, to see if um, Robin could participate and get maybe more positive brainwaves from other people. And he ends up getting the brainwaves from his deceased mother. And so that is the premise of the book. Was that an okay explanation? That's better than I've been doing. Very concise, and it's almost all the major plot points. I I know that this book, in part, was, was influenced by Flowers for Algernon. Yeah, and I, I would say... It wasn't quite that the book was influenced by Flowers for Algernon, but that I realized as I began writing this book that was inspired by my discovery of that decoded neurofeedback procedure that you just described, the, my discovery of the, the real world antecedent of this, of this procedure, that I was telling the story about a possible intervention that would rapidly increase our emotional intelligence. And when I realized that, when I'd gotten far enough into the composition of the book to realize that, I realized that that paralleled in many ways 
this story that I had read when I was Robin's age about a science a science fictiony intervention uh, that allows an individual uh, a rapid development of his cognitive ability of his raw intelligence and so it it really it really was a kind of unconscious parallel paralleling or recreation of this classic uh, uh, science fiction fiction chestnut from my own boyhood so how much of a plot do you see in your head before you start writing? Oh, boy, you know, I, I, I'm reminded of E.L. Doctorow's description of writing as being like a like a, a car trip across uh, the continent at night. You know, your headlights only throw 30 feet down the road, but somehow it's enough to get you thousands of miles down, you know, cr- across uh, the continent. Um, and it, it it's like that for me. Um, I, I stumble forward, uh, from waypoint to waypoint. I have a destination on the horizon, but there's a whole lot of course correction that has to happen along the way. Uh, and oftentimes this is a good sign that something is ratifying the choices that I've been making or that I've been making unconscious choices that are confirmed by, you know, my conscious mind catching up with them down down the line. Sometimes I'll get to a scene or find myself at the end of the book pulling what seems to be a rabbit out of my hat, but which would not have worked at all if there hadn't been a lot of unconscious preparation of the groundwork along the way. So, uh, you know, we learn by going where we have to go, you know, and it, it's a process of short stumbles in the in the more or less regulated direction. But a lot of times it's simply a matter of allowing your understanding of the conscious design to catch up with with a lot of uh, unconscious uh, intuition. And that, you know, that's kind of why I like revision so much. Because on a first draft, you know, the, 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 the course kind of barrels its way toward its destination with a with a lot of false movement lateral and you know starts and stops and so forth and and once you realize how you're going to get from the beginning to the end then the sub, subsequent drafts are are a gift you know they're just this lovely way of saying okay the heavy lifting's been done and now I now that I understand what it is that I'm doing, I can I can bring the fit and finish in fairly, you know, fairly quickly and with with great pleasure. And when you sit down to write your first draft, are you sort of writing and just moving forward like a steam train? Or are you the type of writer that might stop, read what you're writing, and all of a sudden you realize you've spent two days reworking those four pages and then you have to push yourself to go ahead? Or is it something different altogether? Honestly, it's it's been different throughout my career. Bewilderment is my 13th novel. And my first novel 
was published in 1985. So that's almost 40 years of, of publishing. It's 40 years of writing, certainly, if you count, you know, the, the years that went into writing the, the first novel. Um, and I have to say, because each of those novels has had a different structural approach, a different formal uh, set of challenges and, and different moods, different, you know, uh, writing uh, styles and frames of writing style, uh, that the nature of composition and revision has been a little bit different every time out. I, I can think of books when I was younger that I wrote where I absolutely prohibited myself from going back and doing, you know, revisions of earlier chapters until I had a solid first draft. And now, you know, for, for this book and for the previous book, the acts of composition and revision were much more fluidly melded and, and you know, there, there was no really strong line between them on any given day. I might be going forward. I might be going backward. I might just be looping. Uh, but, and I think w when you do allow yourself that kind of degree of uh, organic liberty, um, just, by by nature of the you know the serial process, the beginning tends to get a lot more worked through than the ending. And you know, in other words, there might be I, I might have done forty versions of the first twenty pages, and only four versions of the last twenty pages, because once once you're composing and revising you know, almost almost like systolic and diastolic pump, pumping of your heart. You know, once you're going back and forth between those two kinds of processes, the farther you go, the clearer it is what has to happen. You know, um, every every confirmed choice along the way reduces the search field for for other choices that you can make farther farther along in the story. Yeah, I think that's what's so scary for a lot of people is going to the empty page is that the world mm. is, there are no limits. And as soon as you write one word, you start compressing <laughs> the possibilities, which is kind of comforting. It's too big. It's like space. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, it's often been pointed out that although we think of, uh, you know, writing or composing or painting as as needing huge liberty and you know openness and freedom and inspiration um, the opposite the exact opposite might be more often true that is to get creative processes going you almost need to introduce constraints um, and and you know the the restrictions on your possibilities are what release, you know, the ability to see the ramifications of the, the, the tool set that now has shrunk down to a usable size. Uh, you know, my, my great inspiration lifelong uh, has been the music of, of Bach and nobody was a better master 
at taking almost nothing and making everything out of it. You know, it's almost like the man's brain, you know, required uh, an almost artificially narrow starting set. You know, here, take these four notes uh, before, you know, before that kind of... uh, engine of endless creation could start to, you know, start to ramp up. And it's so amazing, I think, how you make those notes work with one another. Like if I think about bewilderment and I think about some of the notes, I would list some of them off as the election, Trump, climate Mm -hmm. change, um, psychology, loss, Buddhism, animal rights, bullying, um, you know, ADD, science, Mm. funding. These are some of the notes. And Mm. does that make sense to you? I would say those are some of the motifs that are built up from the core tool chest of the notes. And and the notes are almost, you know, there's almost a, 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 a very very small number of fundamental particles that the book works with. And, you know, for instance, empathy would be right, you know, right at the core of many of those motifs that you just listed. Um, And, um, well, bewilderment, right, in both senses of the word, uh, um, confusion, but also a returning to a wild state, uh, a uh, uh, an interconnected state with uh, with the wild beyond beyond us. So I, you know, I would I would say empathy, interbeing, you know, and you know, maybe maybe leave it at that and say almost all of the the whole catalog of of uh, themes that you just listed out are are built out of these you know these small number of of fu- more fundamental preoccupations. Yeah. And so did you know going in that empathy, like in your mind, was that word particularly present or was it more like a feeling? I, I kind of felt my way toward it. But, you know, since the since the original inspiration of the book did come from my reading about this decoded neurofeedback therapy that you described earlier and because that therapy involves getting one brain to emulate the patterns that have been recorded from another it didn't take me long to realize well that's what empathy it is it's it's trying to adopt the perspective and the affective state and the and the concerns and the emotions of another person um, so I wrote my way toward it but I think there was something, you know, that I emotionally responded to in an instinctive way to reading about that procedure that ended up, you know, on the far end, uh, being this fable about this father who's desperate, desperate to protect his very intense and very unusual uh, nine-year-old boy. If you had this empathy machine, who would you put in it first? <laughs> who, who would I, I put in as a, as a pattern or who, who would I put in as uh, needing the training? Needing the training. <laughs> uh, I would I would want to be the first subject on that for sure. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, I wanted to ask you about the title and the concept of bewilderment. As you were saying earlier, 
bewildered kind of has these two meanings like perplexing or confusing, but also going back to the wilderness. And if you take it apart, you know, bewilder is like be wilder. Right. Did that word come to you and you knew it was the title and was it kind of a driving force or was that something else that came out through the process? It's funny, you know, a lot of times my creative process results from having a message, you know, like a memory posted forward into the future that I then intercept much later down the line. So there's, there's like this, uh, signal passed across large periods of time, uh, but it needs a, needs a transmitter and a receiver. In this case, I fell in love with the word bewilderment back in the eighties, uh, when I came across an essay by uh, the physician writer, Lewis Thomas. And the essay, he, he was a great writer and a great scientist um, uh, who wrote a number of essay collections, including famous one called Lives of a Cell, The Lives of a Cell. Um, and there was an essay that Lewis Thomas wrote called On Matters of Doubt. And he, he was exploring the two cultures divide, which you know was was first made notorious by C.P. Snow in a lecture of that name. And it's a it was a growing preoccupation and still, you know, is a is a matter of, of, of real concern that we as human beings were kind of splitting along a big cultural divide into those who saw the world primarily through scientific lens a scientific lens and those who saw the world primarily through a humanistic or, or an artistic lens and that somehow these were you know, radically opposed ways of thinking about what it means to be human in this place and thomas along with many others was very distressed at this idea that you know we might you know uh, be be creating these inimical camps, and he was looking for something that united the arts and the and the humanities and the sciences. He said he was he was going to search through all these catalogs of disciplines and see what condition might be equally familiar to all of them. And he says, "I think I found it. I think I know what's at the heart of." almost every pursuit that humans put their hands to. And he says, it's bewilderment. And, and I just thought that's so lovely. And I want to write a book with that title. Of course, you know, I was a young man in my 20s back then. And the years went by and I wrote book after book after book. And then I, you know, just a few years ago, I guess 2013, uh, when I read about this technique that we've been talking about, and it did remind me of Flowers for Algernon. And I thought I'd go back and have a look anyway and see what Daniel Keyes did in that short story, and you know, which he later turned into a novel. And I didn't make it past the epigraph because he uses a quote from uh, Plato's Republic about the allegory of the cave. And, you know, in the allegory of cave, we're all strapped, shackled in a dark cave and looking at shadows dancing on the wall uh, caused by, you know, projections from coming from behind us. And we're mistaking the shadows for, for 
actual reality. And, you know, one of us breaks out of the chains and goes outside and, and discovers that there's actually an actual world, you know, on the outside, uh, and wants to come back in and tell the others. But of course, you know, the others, you know, think he's crazy. And, and, he uses a quote from that passage on the allegory of the cave, and Plato, uh, Plato says, the mind, like the eye, knows two kinds of bewilderment, going into the light and coming out of it. And I, I saw that word, and it was just electrifying, and I thought, well, here we go, here we go. This, the, this is the, my chance, finally, to write a novel using that title and and exploring those two senses and you know basically building a fable around the mind coming into the light and then being forced back into darkness again you only use the word once in the book unless mm. i missed one but i think i'm right yeah yeah um and the you know i i do uh, allude to the to the the Plato quote. I do quote it, but it's very subtle and and um, it's not clear. Uh, I think as you enter into the story, how to read that title. But I, I I think by the end, both of the senses of that word have have come to bear on the story, and the reader sort of retroactively says, you know, uh, you know that's. That's why the journey is named with this word. Yeah. And it's, it is such a powerful word. Like you couldn't have used it more than once. I don't think in the mm, book, right, it would right. re reduce it somehow. Yeah, I agree. In the experiment that they're doing the, when um, Theo and Alyssa go in, I think there's seven different emotions, although some of them don't seem like emotions that they were mapping. Like uh, one was ecstasy. I think one was vigilance. Mm -hmm. And I'm wondering how you chose what you wanted those to be. So there are several uh, typologies or taxonomies of affective states that psychologists have developed using one system or, or another for their understanding of uh, the, you know, the brain's emotional economy. And the one that Martin Currier uses is a pretty widespread uh, taxonomy. It's, it's, uh, it's called Pluchik's wheel. And if, if you just Google that phrase, uh, you'll see, uh, hundred thousands of, of uh, diagrams of this uh, color wheel of emotions and the, the, they're, they're arranged in wedges of on a wheel and and adjacent wedges share some kind of uh, in relationship uh, of, of uh, gradation of, of spectral change and then they're also arranged uh, concentrically in the circle so that as you go outward in a wedge of the same color, you get different intensities of that emotional valence. And I thought I would choose one that was 
pretty widespread and pretty well known and also easy to find for a reader you know if they just want to to look it up and have a have a look at what it is that martin courier is talking about when he references it in his own research um i don't necessarily uh, have deep knowledge of of uh, the, the reasoning behind uh, these systems, you know, it's often a little surprising to lay people when they see uh, these catalogs of, you know, quote unquote, primary emotions that, you know, that w we will look at those and say, wait, where's X or where's Y, you know, but it, it you know, the, the, it's a, it's a, it's a very complicated set of uh, brain processes that are involved in creating affective states. And it's not surprising that there's no big consensus about, um, you know, what that map looks like, what the map of core emotions look like. Um, but, but this was one and it, it allowed, it allowed me to have at least a, a visual, uh, process as well as, as this experiment is, is, um, unfolding. One of the aspects of, Robin's existence in the world really is he's really like a highly sensitive child. Mm. He sees everything, you know, some children, we want to label them as being like something's wrong with them. And I think you right. write, you write in there that everyone is on the spectrum. Like every, no one's, there's no like size one person and size two person. Like you go mm. buy a pair of pants. Everyone's very mm. unique. And I think the pain of being that type of person when you see the kind of feelings that he has about the earth, you know, his mom was an animal rights attorney and a birder and, she, and he was very, you know, cared so much about the planet and he sees what's going on with climate change. Right. And right. some people can see all that and they really can't go on because it's too much. And other yeah. people do go on. And I just wondered, you know, I mean, obviously your book is a statement about that, but I'm also wondering about like what words you have about that for people as they, yeah. they go about their lives. Yeah. It's, it is true that when you consider what presents Robin with his greatest challenge or his greatest threat to survival at the beginning of the story, you could characterize it as a superabundance of empathy. He's he's too easily wounded when he sees pain outside of himself. He has certainly he has that childhood intensity and what E.O. Wilson calls biophilia. You know, he he has that children's. Uh, fascination with living things that, you know, that kind of pantheistic quality that children have, uh, as they discover the living world. But when he begins to learn about what humans are doing to this world and he confronts his father with those questions, the degree of, of pain that he feels is overwhelming to him. And that's uh, his, his father comes to believe that one of the great causes for his emotional turbulence, of course, is the trauma of losing his mother uh, just a short while before, but also simply that the boy can't shut down his ability to feel the, the pain and suffering of other things. So it's a, it's a little paradoxical that he then undergoes this training in 
the empathy machine in order to calm him and stabilize him and give him more self-possession. But in some ways, as we watch Robin increase his emotional intelligence, the, the, the sense of well-being comes from his increasing ability to know that the world in its infinite invention and resourcefulness will survive pain and will survive catastrophe and will adapt to whatever lies beyond the rim of catastrophe. And that seems, you know, that sense of feeling as if all that he loves will continue in some some constantly ramifying and branching experiment beyond him is a, is a comfort to him. And in a sense, that's, that is the consolation that's held out by a lot of the major world religions. Get outside of your own locked room, get outside of your own cave. Stop thinking that there's a radical division between you and other living things that after all, share a great deal of kinship with you and begin to see your own sense of purpose and destiny in a collaborative interbeing. And I think that is not just what sensitive children need, but I think that change in consciousness from meaning being primarily a personal thing to meaning being a shared communal process that's out there beyond us is the kind of change in consciousness that we adults also need to stop being paralyzed by eco trauma and start realizing that there will be a world beyond the catastrophe. It will be a world that continues to adapt and aligning ourselves with that world, finding meaningful ways to um, to rehabilitate our place in the world could be more meaning-filled, more purpose-driven than the world that we are now so anxious about losing. You know, a world that actually hasn't ever given us an abiding kind of stable grace and satisfaction. This culture of human separatism, the culture of commodity-mediated meaning of individualism is a very lonely and a very hungry culture. And it's always hoping that getting just a little bit more, as Andrew Carnegie once put it, is going to finally solve the problem. And it never does. Yeah, you have a line in the book where just you just write, no one wants to be alone. And I think that speaks in some way to what you're saying. Like alone doesn't just mean alone in your humanity. It could be alone mm-hmm. with like every living living thing. Mm-hmm. But I just mm-hmm. wanted to, to ask you about that sentiment. About the sentiment that no one likes to be alone? Yeah, that no one wants to be alone. Yeah. And I, and I think our culture is a culture of loneliness because it, it is a culture of really radical individualism. It is a culture that... Uh, is is predicated on competition and accumulation, and it's a you know it's a culture where we we believe that everyone has to make their own purpose and meaning. That's kind of you know that's kind of you know 
humanism in its most terrifying form is you're in it. You know, it's your invention. You know, go out there and do whatever you want. But it's always a very <laughs> isolating freedom. I mean, I think that's why we grasp so much at doing and like our ideas of success. You know, there's no getting around it that that we are like we are in this vessel, this body that mm. is ours. And it's um, I think part of like being alive on this planet is like kind of making peace without loneliness while also searching for some unity that we can find with others. I agree. And I, I think I think the first large step in that second component is to realize how completely colonized we've been by this idea of human uniqueness, you know, that this idea that we are the only creatures with intelligence, with consciousness, with agency, uh, and you know, the, 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 we are the only sacred creatures on earth and the, and the only interesting game here, you know, and that's an incredibly lonely making culture. You know, if, if the rest of the living planet is just a big stockpile of resources for humans to keep, you know, trying to build more stuff, you know, it, it's easy to see why so many people get demoralized, you know, and especially if you overlay that with the eco trauma that is so obvious and, and so such an epidemic among the young, you know, um, and, you know, Robin is just an emblem of uh, children of all ages who, at, you know, in, in, in great numbers, it's shockingly early ages start to say, what's the point? You know, and it's partly because we it's hard for us to imagine a point that isn't being overwhelmed and threatened by the climate catastrophe. You know, it's hard for us to, 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 to think that there could be cultures that say, you know, this whatever is coming is every bit as much an opportunity to grow back into the world. Um, than it is, you know, a, 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 an annihilating loss of the point. And, and, you know, there have been many, many cultures in the world over the course of human history that know what the point is, even in great adversity. And it's not building ourselves, you know, more and more protection against the living planet the way that, you know, we, we do. It's simply returning to it, landing back on Earth, becoming one of the neighbors. Um, so has your journey philosophically as a writer, not that you weren't like into the environment before, but ha have you moved a lot from that technological view deeper and deeper into a more eco view? Beyond a doubt. And it happened uh, with the overstory. So I, I kind of see my 13 books as... Uh, 11 books moving from technological preoccupations to uh, biocultural preoccupations. And then the big breakthrough for me emotionally and intellectually coming with the overstory and now continuing with the bewilderment, which is kind of a shoot and offspring of, of the overstory in my mind, although it's a very different 
profoundly different kind of book. It continues the themes and the preoccupations of the Orr story. One of the things I wrote down in my notes, it wasn't something in your book acutely at all, but I just wrote that I saw your writing and my my existence in the world as my body being the earth and my mind being space. Uh, wow, that's lovely. Yeah. Uh, one thing you did structurally was in between the narrative you had, um, I mean, it's still part of the narrative, but you would, one of the things Theo does with his son is they, because he's looking for signs of life on other planets, I mean, biological life, any kind of life, um, he makes up planets and it's kind of a soothing thing to, with his son and he makes up a planet and he talks about the rules of the planet and what's going on in that planet. And I just wanted to ask you about creating that. Yeah, it's one of the few things that allow them to connect in a peaceful and deep and mutual way. It's almost in place of bedtime stories. Um, and of course, Theo draws on what he knows his own field of astrobiology to serve up for Robin stories that might help orient him here on earth that might address some of his fears and some, and, and some of his hopes. Um, but that also ultimately as, you know, father and son bounce from planet and planet to planet across the universe, it also turns them back to this place and it's a process by which the two of them come to realize just how many things have to come together to produce a, a place that's as lucky for life as, as we have here. So the, the journey outwards to all these different planets is also for both of them, a journey back to, to the living planet all around them. Can you read a passage from an author that speaks to you or influenced you as a writer? I chose a poet, and I actually wanted to be a poet when I first fell in love with writing. I never imagined myself as a novelist. And the poet who I wanted to be was one who I discovered when I was 16 and who has really stayed with me my whole life, and that's William Butler Yeats. And I don't know what it is about Yeats that has made him so resonant for me and that has made him so protean uh, over the years. Every time I go back to him, he seems like another old creature altogether. You know, he himself started out as a real esthete and ended up almost forced into uh, a, a political uh, realist. And that journey is fascinating in itself. This is a, is a, a four stanza poem called The Stairs Nest by My Window. It's part of a larger cycle of poems called Meditations in Time of Civil War. It's Yeats being troubled into politics by the Irish Civil War in the in the early part of the 20th century. Uh, and I picked it because I can't read this without feeling as if it's every bit as intense and revelatory and applicable to to our world over a, a century later. The bees build in the crevices of loosening masonry, and there the mother birds bring grubs and flies. My wall is loosening. Honey bees come build in the empty house of the stair. We are closed in, and the key is turned on our uncertainty. 
Somewhere a man is killed or a house burned, yet no clear fact to be discerned. Come build in the empty house of the stair. A barricade of stone or wood, some 14 days of civil war. Last night they trundled down the road that dead young soldier in his blood. Come build in the empty house of the stair. We had fed the heart on fantasies. The heart's grown brutal from the fair, more substance in our enmities than in our love. Oh, honeybees, come build in the empty house of the stair. It's beautiful. Do you want to say anything else or you got it? <laughs> I think that's it. Yeah. Can you read something you wrote? Maybe it was tricky or hard or changed a lot from the first draft. Well, I, I think I'm not unusual uh, in saying that the trickiest parts of a book are always the, the, the ending because, you know, those words that you use to finish out a book are going to get maximum amount of psychic attention from the reader. And they also have to be responsible for transforming everything that has come before into a meaningful trajectory. And that's why endings are so, so difficult for so many writers, but also the beginning, because in, a, in an inverse way, you have to allow the beginning to stand to be a kind of microcosm of everything that's going to unfold from it, a tiny little seed that, you know, has a, has a fractal version of the novel all compressed into, you know, the first opening paragraphs. Uh, but it also has to seem simple and transparent, very easy to enter into um, for the reader uh, who's coming into this world blind. And that's why, you know, my endings and my beginnings get done again and again and again. And I thought I would just read the opening paragraph of Bewilderment. Uh, you know, Yeats uh, writes in one of his poems, you know, we have to, we have to spend in you know, countless hours of hard work making it seem as if we just tossed the line off. <laughs> And that's that's what I think about when you know when when I, I I strive to make the opening extremely simple, but also a kind of uh, compact uh, microcosm of the, the the entire novel. But we might never find them. We'd set up the scope on the deck on a clear autumn night, on the edge of one of the last patches of darkness in the eastern U.S. Darkness this good was hard to come by, and so much darkness in one place lit up the sky. We pointed the tube through a gap in the trees above our rented cabin. Robin pulled his eye from the eyepiece. My sad, singular, newly turning nine-year-old in trouble with the world. Thank you. Where do you write? I write in bed, <laughs> and these days uh, in, in my cabin in the woods, uh, the bed is out on a screened-in porch, and I will sleep there unless the night is really brutally cold, but I, on most nights of the year, I can, I can uh, 
sleep out uh, among the owls and the and the whippoorwills. Um, but I also love to to lie in that bed outside with the ravine in front of me, and the birds flying back and forth, and the skinks running across the the railings. Uh, and the occasional bear in the undergrowth breaking the, the the branches. I just love to 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 write outdoors as the light changes and the and the and the breeze blows blows through the deck. What do you do or where do you go to get away from writing? You know, it's not it's not so much to get away from writing, but to get away from um, the 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 need to. Um, transfer the thought processes in my head to fixed sentences and words and sentences on the page. I'll go down to the river that's about four miles from my house um, and on a, on a cold day just sit by the river and on uh, hotter days actually get into the cascades and there's something about the white noise of the river, about the ions, the negative ions that the cascades are producing uh, and uh, you know about um, the power and the and the visual interest of of water tumbling over the stones that defocuses me and allows me to get back into those unconscious processes that are so important for finding our way forwards. Who do you show your work to first to get feedback? <laughs> yeah, I, I probably should show my work earlier in the process uh, because by the time I get feedback, it's almost too late. Uh, the design has set in, the, the work has hardened into a kind of you know concrete, um, I, I usually don't show it to anybody until I've been through, you know, enough drafts to be fairly close to the finished thing. Uh, and then there are, you know, there are two or three uh, trusted uh, friends and family that, uh, you know, I've been with too long uh, to be offended by if they tell me it's not quite right. How have you dealt with rejection? Uh, not very well always. Um, I, I guess it's funny. I, I, I honestly, I would say I'm almost schizophrenic with regard to, uh, public opinion or outsider, uh, judgment. Um, I'm very thin skinned. Uh, I want people to feel you know, the excitement that I feel in the face of something that I feel is well-made and it's, it's often wild, you know, wildly upsetting to, to realize how radically differently people can read the exact same thing. There is alongside that thin skinned person, an absolutely indifferent person <laughs> who just feels so strongly the inexorable aspects of my own process that a little switch flips and I go from feeling crushed to feeling like, Oh, you know, I don't know why you didn't get that. <laughs> and and maybe you will someday. So there, and I, I think, you know, that sounds like arrogance and it probably is, but I think a little bit of that, is almost required if you want to keep writing year after year. And what is your favorite word? <laughs> well, it's cheating, but I'm going to say that among them certainly is bewilderment. I told you the story of how long it's been been with me as an obsession, and it seems as good as any to uh, to put up there with the with the ones that I keep coming back to. 
Well, thank you so much for this conversation. I'm so appreciative. I enjoyed it. I wish we'd had a little more time, but I hope you you uh, uh, you know felt like uh, we touched on most of of what you wanted to talk about. If you like today's show with Richard Powers, author of Bewilderment, check out my interview with Jenny O'Phil on her novel Weather. We touch on the existential threat of climate change, activism, search and rescue missions, the experience of time, and metafiction. You can find that interview and the entire First Draft archive of more than 315 interviews at firstdraftwriters.com. You can stay tuned to First Draft on social media, on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Just look for First Draft A-D-O-W. You can email me at firstdraftwriters at gmail.com anytime. Remember, there are plenty of extras for becoming a member and donating to First Draft, including access to pitch-free, ad-free content, as well as cuts from the interviews that didn't make it into the final show, writing tips for my guests, books, and more. Join me as I reach for honesty, vulnerability, connection, curiosity, and insights on craft with each episode. I can't tell you enough how much each and every single dollar counts to keeping the show alive. The first tier of support is just $6 a month, so please go to patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters. Coming up in the next few months on First Draft, interviews with Rebecca Solnit, Evie Wild, EJ Levy, and Charlotte Wood. I want to send out a huge thank you to my patrons for making this interview happen. Your support makes First Draft a dialogue on writing a reality every week. Please stay healthy and safe. The theme music for First Draft was produced and performed by Murph Mahaffey. I'm your host and producer, Mitzi Rapkin. Thank you for listening.